Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the book of Judges, Judges chapter 20. Hear now the word of our God from Judges chapter 20. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribes of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God. Who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. The people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. 
So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah. And the, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the people in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah and in the open country. And about 30 men of Israel died. And the people of Benjamin said, they are routed before us as at the first. But the people of Israel said, let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in the ambush rushed out of their place from Ma'are Geba. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword, so the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush who they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the men in the main ambush was that when they made a great cloud of smoke rise up out of the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel. They said, surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjaminites looked behind them and behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned and the men of Benjamin were dismayed for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjaminites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noha as far as opposite Gibeah on the east. Eighteen thousand men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon. Five thousand men of them were cut down on the highways. And they were pursued hard to Gidom, and two thousand men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were twenty-five thousand men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Rimon and remained at the rock of Rimon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts and all that they found. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire. This is the word of the Lord. We've been working our way through the book of Judges and hearing how Israel has become like the nations. It's a, it's a story of sin, death, rebellion. It's a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so not surprisingly, the story has gotten increasingly out of control the further we go. As we saw last week, Judges 19 is the worst story in the book. And the solution in Judges 20 is hardly comforting in some respects. We saw last time how Judges 19 is, is a tale of two cities. There was Bethlehem in Judah, where the hospitality was splendid. And Gibeah in Benjamin, where the hospitality reminds us of Sodom. Sodom in the days of Lot, when God sent fire from heaven to destroy the city because of its wickedness. David, of course, was the king from Bethlehem in Judah, Saul was the king from Gibeah in Benjamin. And the contrast here at the end of the book of Judges is pretty clear. 
You don't want a king from Gibeah. Would you want a king from a city that acts like Sodom? Judges 19 ended with the concubine from Bethlehem and Judah gang-raped, murdered, and cut up in 12 pieces, sent as a grisly message to all Israel, summoning the people of God to action. But as the refrain of the book of Judges says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this problem doesn't just go away. All Israel gathers together from Dan to Beersheba, Dan in the far north. We heard in the previous story in chapter 17 and 18 of how Dan settled in the north. And then all the way down to Beersheba, down in Judah in the south, including the land of Gilead. So that's the eastern part across the Jordan. This is the first time since the very beginning of the book that all Israel has gathered together. We haven't heard of such a thing since chapter 2, verse 4. 400,000 men. None of the judges throughout the whole book were able to mobilize the nation. Only this nameless Levite from Ephraim. Only this outrage done against the concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Only the wickedness of the men of Gibeah in Benjamin. But now all the congregation gathers. And as we heard They're gathered by Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. Now, Phinehas was the high priest who had gathered them in Joshua 22. So, as we saw last time, this story actually takes place towards the beginning of the time period of the judges. It's important to say that because our text tells us that. But our text didn't put this story at the beginning of the book of Judges. It doesn't belong there. Our our author is not telling us a story in chronological order. Our our, Our author is telling us a story that leads to a point. Even though this may have been the first story in in some respects, this this may have happened way at the beginning of the time period. Our author wants us to see, even though, okay, it may have happened earlier. And he tells us it happened earlier. He's not hiding that fact at all. But he gives us this story at the end of the book to say, this is what characterizes the whole point of the book of Judges. When you want to, if you want to understand what's going on in this period, maybe it happened toward the beginning. That's fine. But this is the, this is the problem. Israel has become not just like the Canaanites. Israel's become like Sodom. And when you become like Sodom, judgment falls. It's not, obviously it's not all Israel. All, Israel here is the one bringing judgment. But the point of the book of Judges is that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And do you really want a king from Gibeah? Do you really want a king from a, t- a city that would do such a horrible thing? Because notice, they gather all Israel except Benjamin. Benjamin hears about this, but Benjamin doesn't come. And the Levite tells his story to the assembly. Now, it, it, it's worth noting that the Levite leaves out some details here. I mean, he doesn't mention that, yeah, I was the one who pushed her out the door. He leaves that part out. wonder why. There's nothing in the book of Judges, nothing in, the, in this story that should make you feel particularly kindly towards this Levite. He's not portrayed as anything like a decent fellow. He's not the victim here. 
the concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. She was the one who died so that, quite frankly, he might live. But all Israel responds with outrage when they hear. And they say, none of us will go to his tent. Uh, for the third, for th- you know, there are three times in our passage when it says that Israel united as one man. Now, you've heard now the whole book of Judges. When in all of the period of the Judges did Israel unite as one man? This is not what happens in the book of Judges. But that happens here because they see and they hear and they commit to bringing justice against Gibeah. The Levite is no hero. He's a miserable example of a husband. But that doesn't change the fact that a horrible crime was committed and justice demands that the guilty be held accountable. So they don't say, oh, well, you know, you're a jerk, so we're not going to deal with it. No. She was gang-raped and murdered. This is, not to be, this is not to be tolerated. And so they send messengers throughout Benjamin asking Benjamin to hand over the guilty. What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now, therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows, the sons of Belial, who, who did this thing, that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. They're basically saying, you know, justice needs to be done. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. And once again... Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. How often have we seen this? Circling the wagons. Hey, he's one of us. He's a good guy. What's the big deal? Boys will be boys. No. Boys will be men. If they learn when they are young that they can get away with murder, they will simply continue the habit. Oh, maybe they'll get a little more careful. Do you really want people being more careful at how they murder? No. Justice needs to be done. It is wrong to protect our own from justice. If our own have done what is heinous in the sight of God, then they need to be dealt with appropriately. Think of the language that Israel uses in their message, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. Now, this, this word translated evil will be used several times in our passage, but translated differently. Here it's translated evil. Later it will be translated disaster. It's the same word. Uh, sometimes, sometimes we get used to uh, thinking of evil and disaster as two different things. We think of evil as being sort of the moral evil and disasters as being just sort of natural evils but the same word in Hebrew is used for both and it's worth noting that because when it says that that, that we, are, we will purge evil it's, you could say that we will purge disaster it's, it's not just saying oh that, that, that we must take, away, take out these evil people it's also saying the wrath of God is, is, is coming upon us because of this and so therefore, either we will, become, we will be the agents of, of bringing justice in this case, or we will face the wrath of God. When evil is allowed to flourish, then disaster comes. Evil comes. 
when sin and rebellion is encouraged, then God will judge that people. They understand the parallels. They remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. When Sodom acted in such a way, God sent fire from heaven and destroyed the city. And it remains the case to this day that God brings judgment against cities that protect the wicked. It's not always immediate. God doesn't, it's not just like an instant, you you know that. Cities get away with it for generations at times. And it's not as though God always picks the worst city to start with first. Was Sodom the most evil city that ever existed in that time period? Not necessarily. It's, it's, it's not that, oh, Sodom was the most wicked. No, it was that Sodom was a wicked city and God brought judgment upon Sodom for their wickedness because the cry, the cry has come out. Come to, what, you know, when disasters strike modern cities... Does God pick the worst city first? Not always. But when disaster strikes, yes, God is bringing judgment upon a city for allowing injustice to flourish. Every city will have bad things happen. Every city will have unjust things happen in their midst. Part of the question is, do the leaders of the city do justice? Do they remedy the wrongs because there will never be a city there was, there was once a, a president of a major university who who said uh, you know there will always be rapes on campus and she nearly got fired for saying that how dare you say that and she, was, she was she's a really good historian I've read several of her books I mean she knows history we're never going to, it's never going to stop altogether. The question is, what do you do about it when it happens? Do you let it flourish or do you do something? And that's where what Israel is saying here is, we need to do something. We need to say what it is and say, this cannot be done. If it's done, it will be punished. It will be dealt with. It will not be tolerated. And that's what we need to focus on. And if the city fails to do justice... Will the regional authorities step in? Will Benjamin step in? And if the regional authorities fail to act, well, now the whole nation must come together to rectify the situation. Because when Benjamin refuses, all Israel gathers together for war for the first time since the days of Joshua. All through the book of Judges, the judges had trouble mobilizing all Israel. They could get a a few tribes to come together, but... Almost in every case, there's somebody holding out. There's somebody squawking about how we're not part of this. But now the target is one of their own, Benjamin. Benjamin has made it clear that they will defend their own against the claims of justice. And since Benjamin has defended the guilty, since they are willing to fight in order to protect the city like Sodom, they have brought upon themselves the verdict of Sodom. It's worth keeping in mind that if you, if you stand behind the wicked, if you endorse the wicked, if you fight for the wicked and say, no, we will defend them against the claims of justice, then you become guilty of their sin because you're defending it. You're endorsing it. Benjamin gathers his troops 
26,000 against 400,000. You'd, you'd think just po- politics would say, um, you got 20 times as many troops. We're not going to try to fight this one. But Benjamin has a special weapon. They have 700 chosen men who are left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. I mean, you got, if you've got 700 slingers that have that sort of skill, and especially they're left-handed, which means, just from a strategic standpoint, if you're used to defending yourself against right-handed slingers, you'll hold your shield a certain way, and the left-handed slinger can get you the other way. So there's, there's a certain tactical thing going on here. But there's more going on here. Do you remember what Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. These are left-handed sons of the right hand. But of course, in Hebrew, it's not, the word isn't left-handed. The word is restricted in their right hand. The same phrase used of Ehud back in chapter 3. Remember Ehud, the the left-handed Benjaminite? The, the son of my right hand who was restricted in his right hand. Ehud was the second judge. Wait a second. What does that mean? Either Ehud is one of these 700 slingers or he's the son of one of them. One of the survivors. If you look at the timeline, since this occurs during the time of Phineas, Ehud comes along perhaps 20 or 30 years later. So he's either one of these slingers or one of the sons of the survivors. Sure, Ehud is a good and faithful judge, but his associations make him a little suspect. So... Israel launches into this battle against Benjamin. But first, they inquire of the Lord. Who shall go up first? And for the first time in the last several chapters, the Lord speaks. Judah shall go first. Judah has been God's favored weapon since chapter 1. And now they have the added incentive of being the aggrieved tribe. And so with with Yahweh's blessing, they go forth into battle and are routed. And 22,000 Israelites die. Wait, wait, wait a second. When, when Judah goes first, the Lord was with Judah, and Judah wins their battles. And what, what's going on here? You would think that with, with Judah in the lead, and when God said they should do it, that God would be with them and they'd win. Why do they lose? Now, we're not told directly, though we'll get a clue later. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and, and again formed the battle line in the same place. And, and they went up and, and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? I mean, we're fighting against our brothers. This is a fratricidal war. Shall we do this again? And Yahweh says, go up against them. And Benjamin slaughters 18,000 more. They've now killed more Israelites than there are Benjaminites in the whole of the country. What's going on? Why is God saying go and then Benjamin wins? Well, they were inquiring of the Lord. 
But something was missing. Then all the people of Israel, verse 26, the whole army went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. They hadn't done that before. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. For the Ark of the Covenant of God was there. Now we're getting more detail what's going on here. Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go once more, or shall we cease? Shall we battle against our brothers? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. You see, if you would be the instrument of God's wrath, bringing judgment against the wicked, it's not enough to be right. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What's missing is worship. They call for a day of fasting. They offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. They return to Bethel and weep and pray and fast. All Israel, all the people of Israel came up. At this time, it's not just for battle. They had been quick to say, oh, let's bring justice. But they now come to worship. They offer burnt offerings and peace offerings to Yahweh. And only when Israel worships Yahweh does Yahweh give them the victory. If you are going to be the agent of God's wrath, if you are going to be the destroying angel, then you must first be purified. And there's a sense in which this is also what's happening in those first two days. They are being purified through the death of their own soldiers. Will you do what is right in my sight, even at the cost of 40,000 warriors? Even when it appears that God is against you, will you worship me even when things don't go right? Will you still do what is right in my eyes at any cost, no matter what? And so they fast and they pray, they worship the Lord, and they ask, shall we go up again or shall we cease? And the Lord answers, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. I don't think it's accidental that it's on the third day that God gives them the victory. Now, the ambush that's described in verses 29 to 37 reminds us of Joshua's ambush against Ai back in the book of Joshua. A very similar context, even. It was Israel's sin at Jericho that lay in the backdrop when Achan took the devoted things for himself. Likewise, the men of Ai grew cocky from their initial victory, but after Israel had dealt with their sin, they set an ambush for Ai to lure them into a trap. And the same trap is sprung here in Judges 20 at Gibeah. It reminds us of a couple things here. First, just because God promises that you're going to win, it doesn't mean you you don't need a strategy. When God says, I will give them into your hand, you could say, oh, well, then we're just going to, you know, we're just going to walk up and take the city. That's not, no. When God says you're going to win, that means, okay, but we still need to think carefully, how do we do this well? But also, secondly, it's not your strategy that wins battles. 
verse 35 says, The Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. The battle belongs to the Lord. So both trust God and be smart. Be careful. Be strategic. It's, you don't ignore a strategy just because you have the promise that you're going to win. In the same way, when Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, that doesn't mean that we should be stupid about it and say, well, then who cares what we do because the gates of hell won't prevail. No, actually, we need to be strategic in how we wage our spiritual warfare because that's still the way that God has called us to be his servants. At the same time, we see Benjamin's utter desolation. Benjamin has no priest, no access to the word of the Lord. They continue to do simply what is right in their own eyes. And the result is that they fall into the trap. And when the ambush party takes the city, they set the city on fire. And the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven. The language is used on purpose to remind you that Gibeah has become like Sodom and Gomorrah, where the smoke of the furnace went up. And as at Gibeah, so also Benjamin. The warriors of Benjamin are struck down. They try to flee and are cut down. Only 600 men of Benjamin survived the battle. But it's not just the warriors. The whole tribe is implicated. When God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, he, he didn't just kill the, sort of the leaders. He wiped out the whole city. Men, women, children, animals, everything. And in the same way, the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men and beasts, and all that they found. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire. Benjamin has become so Canaanite in their ways that the same method of warfare that God commanded to use against the Canaanites is now the way that Israel wipes out Benjamin. The curse of Sodom has fallen upon Gibeah and all who defend the city. Except for those 600 Benjaminites who hid in the cave of Rimon, the entire tribe is wiped off the face of the earth. Really? The whole tribe? How, how is that fair? I mean, they, they, they killed one concubine. And now the whole tribe gets obliterated? Well, as we saw earlier, heinous evil stains the land. When you excuse and justify the rape and murder of another man's daughter... justified your own daughter's death. If you say, oh, it's okay to kill her, I don't mind that, then you're saying, please kill my daughter. Because that's the, that's the justice that you have just de declared. You have just said, it's okay to kill his daughter. Well, then it's okay to kill your daughter. With the same measure of justice that you use, it will be meted out to you. Wait, that was Jesus who said that. Yes. Jesus said, with the same measure that you use, it will be measured out to you. If you think it's okay to do this to, to them, then it will be done to you. Why does Benjamin get obliterated? 
because all they had to do was say, yeah, what Gibeah did was wrong. Okay. You say what Gibeah did was wrong. Okay, then, and we're not, we're not going to kill anybody else except the men who did this. Right, they're the ones guilty of murder. So kill them. <laughs> but if you defend them, if you say, no, 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 what they did was okay, that guilt transfers to you. Okay, well, if it's okay to do it to them, then it should be. Then you are saying you want it done to you. Uh, no, you might say, well, that's not what I meant. But if, if you say that it's okay to do this, that you're not going to hold them accountable, then you're saying, then that's the ju- standard of justice I want applied to me. And that's how God applies the story to Gibeah, where now Benjamin's whole tribe is wiped out because they defended the rape and murder of the concubine from Bethlehem. As they have done to others, so it is done to them. If you want to be like Sodom, expect the fate of Sodom to be your own. If you want to be like the Canaanites, expect the fate of Canaan to be your own. But of course, it's not just Benjamin that suffers for this. Over 40,000 soldiers of Israel have been killed as well. Israel has discovered his greatest enemy himself. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And do not think for a moment that this is just, oh, that was back then. Paul tells us. Why was this written down? These stories were written down for our example on whom the ends of the ages have come, that we might not protect sinners from the consequences of their sin. I've seen too many stories of churches that have protected the guilty and not said, no, this justice needs to be done. Can't happen. Because if that's what we do, then that's this is what happens to us. Sure, Jesus died so that we might live. Oh, absolutely. He also died to make things right. He died to deal with sin and misery. As he said in his first sermon in Luke 4, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's why Jesus came. He came to make right the wrongs. He came to to die for our sins, absolutely. But he also came to make right both sin and misery. And that's why I also, you know, anytime I bring up all this stuff about Sodom and Canaanites and all that, I, I can't help but point out that that beautiful thing that God keeps doing every time with all of these nations that he cursed Because think about Sodom. Who survived Sodom? Well, it was Lot and his daughters. And then there's that equally troublesome story about Lot and his daughters, the incest that leads to the birth of Moab and Ammon. And of course, who's the most famous Moabite in all of history? But Ruth. Ruth, who was a Moabite the descendant of the last remnant of Sodom. 
and she winds up in the line of our Lord Jesus. She winds up the great-grandmother of the first king from Bethlehem in Judah. Wow, she's tied to the story really closely, isn't she? Because she's the great-grandmother of David. And so because of her story and how she brings that last remnant of Sodom in. And we already saw earlier in our series back in Joshua when we heard about Rahab, the, 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 the remnant of the Canaanites are also drawn into the story because Rahab winds up as the mother of Boaz, the mother of Boaz who married Ruth and who brought this whole story together in Bethlehem of Judah. That God brought in the cursed remnant of Canaan, the cursed remnant of Sodom, because God's purpose in this whole story is not... Sure, we get this. We get this really clear picture of, okay, you want justice? This is, justice demands the obliteration of Benjamin because they defended the city. They defended Gibeah. But what, God, what is God doing in the big picture? What's he doing in Bethlehem of Judah? Why do you want a king from Bethlehem and Judah? Because it's only the king from Bethlehem and Judah who actually has the last remnant of Sodom, the last remnant of Canaan, the last remnant of humanity is found in our Lord Jesus Christ where all of the cursed peoples of the earth, yeah, including us, all of the cursed peoples of the earth find the blessed one, the one who has who has dealt with sin and misery because the Lord has placed his spirit upon him and anointed him to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, that there might be justice brought, things might be made right, in such a way that we might still be saved and that both those things come together in Jesus. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, have mercy on us because we see clearly in your word what sin deserves. And we see that if, if you would do as we deserve, we would all be destroyed in the city of Gibeah. And we would all be destroyed in the tribe of Benjamin. We would all be destroyed by the, with the Canaanites and with Sodom. And yet... In your great mercy, you have sent the king from Bethlehem because you have sent one who came in our flesh and who bore in his own flesh the wrath and curse that was upon us. He has borne all of the, the hatred and fury of humanity, Jew and Gentile alike, that in his death, in his crucifixion, through his cross, he might take upon himself the curse that was upon us that he might bring us salvation, that he might bring us hope, that he might bring us peace. Lord, have mercy and help us to trust your promises and to believe that you will do what you have said you will do, to have confidence that that you will continue to, to send forth your word, your gospel to the ends of the earth. Help us to be fruitful in our work, that we might believe your promises and and. Use wise strategy in seeking to bring the good news of Jesus to the, the, the nations that are perishing. Lord, have mercy. And have mercy upon us in our several callings, in the work that you've given us to do. Help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, to, to have your word dwell in us richly, that we might be fruitful, we might be thankful, 
that we might show forth our gratitude to you in, in the way that we express that gratitude to one another as well. Lord, shine upon us the light of your countenance and grant to us your peace. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.